Welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which can be heard on VHHA.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you consume your podcasts. We're also on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, 107.7 FM, and 8.20 a.m. across Central Virginia, and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to pcfpodcast at vhha.com. That's pcfpodcast at vhha.com. Today we're excited to be joined by Dr. Rupa Valdez, PhD, an award-winning associate professor of public health sciences and engineering systems and environment at the University of Virginia for a conversation about her research work focused on advocacy to support people with disabilities and chronic conditions, her recent testimony in Congress, and much more. So with that, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Valdez. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, we're glad to have you. So in my preparation for this conversation, I read a little bit about some of your work. And just to provide some context for our listeners, I saw that your research focuses primarily on identifying challenges confronting members of the disability community, developing solutions to those issues, and then also working to support people as they manage personal health at home and in their communities. So with that in mind, can you tell us a little bit about what inspires your work and then maybe share some practical examples of what that looks like? Yeah, I'm happy to. So in terms of how I got to this work, I was at Wisconsin at a time when I was doing my undergraduate training where I was in an engineering program. And there was interest at Wisconsin and a growing interest in other places as well in terms of how that engineering work could be applied to healthcare. And it happened to me around the same time that I started developing my own chronic health conditions. So I live with multiple chronic health conditions and disabilities. And that confluence of factors, kind of being at this place where this discussion was happening in academic circles and then having my own experience of starting to really um, spend a lot of time in healthcare facilities and thinking about this in the context of what life was like for me at home led to my initial interest. And that has grown and, and taken shape in a range of ways over the years. And so most of my work focuses on marginalized communities, kind of differently defined depending on the work I'm doing, including, as you mentioned, the disability community. So in terms of what that looks like, kind of on a day-to-day basis in the work I do, my work started with a really strong focus on what we call health information technology. So thinking about everything from mobile apps to electronic health records and the ways in which we would design such technologies to support home and community-based healthcare, so the ways in which people manage chronic health conditions um, in their everyday lives. And increasingly, it's also focused on thinking about advocacy and systems change at larger scales. So, you know, kind of if I think about my technology-based work as thinking about how do I create alignment between the technologies that we design and the environments and situations in which people live and work, increasingly I focus on how do we change structural barriers to those environments and attitudinal barriers in those environments as well. So with that in mind, I wonder if you have thoughts on how this COVID pandemic that we've all been going through for the past years has shifted perspectives in that world. So for instance, we know that the flexibility provided to folks via telehealth, so physicians and doctors can meet patients where they are, have been embraced like never before while people are hunkered down at home. So in your world and the work that you do, in what way do you feel like the pandemic has helped drive change perhaps? And then big picture as well, if you would, how do you feel like the pandemic impacted people with disabilities? There's a lot in that question. So maybe I'll start with talking about telehealth as, as a good example of some of the work that I do and how the pandemic has impacted people with disabilities. 
And so if we think about telehealth, there's, of course, been benefits, right, in terms of the ways in which people with disabilities can now access care. So with the flexibilities provided in terms of seeking care across state lines, there is a reduced wait for specialists, which can often be a challenge for people with disabilities. It's also, if we think about people's home and community spaces, uh, we often design those spaces in ways that meet our needs and that are accessible to us. And that can be a real barrier when attending healthcare facilities. So again, it, it provides a way to reduce barriers to access for some people with disabilities. And transportation is another example I like to give. So for myself personally, I haven't driven in over 10 years now. And so having to think less about coordinating public transportation or coordinating transportation with family members or friends who can help me arrive at a destination. So, you know, a wide range of ways in which we can think about how access has been enabled through telehealth. At the same time, I like to point to barriers that have also arisen from telehealth. So often telehealth, like other health information technologies and other technologies more generally, is not designed in ways that are accessible to people with disabilities. And so that can pose a whole other level of barrier to receiving quality health care. And so another example I like to give is in terms of usefulness, right, of something like telehealth. So for someone with a disability, if we often think of synchronous telehealth visits as having a healthcare professional and a patient, for someone with a disability, it may be more appropriate to have three or four people present in that encounter. So you might have an ASL interpreter, you may have a care partner present as well. And so how do we think about creating technology in ways that are useful for people with disabilities? Um, so that's one example. Of course, you know, much more broadly speaking, there have been a wide range of impacts of the pandemic for people with disabilities. Um, another example that you know has been really important to the disability community is thinking about things like crisis standards of care. Quality of life is assessed by healthcare professionals for people with disabilities. So, you know, one statistic that we often talk about is that you know over 80% of physicians report that people with significant disabilities have a worse quality of life than their non-disabled counterparts. But this doesn't hold true when you ask people with disabilities themselves about their own quality of life. You know, the kind of assessment of quality of life has impacted things like how we talk about crisis standards of care, again, right, in ways that are detrimental for people with disabilities. And you touched on something really interesting there that I kind of want to drill down on a little bit. When folks think about accessibility, I feel like a lot of times it's physical accessibility, so transportation, things like that. But Obviously, our world is getting increasingly more digital, and we're leaning on that technology more and more. So you talked a little bit about synchronous telehealth visits and how needs for folks with disabilities might be different than folks that don't have disabilities. So what do you feel like we need to be thinking about as we move forward in terms of digital accessibility for things like telehealth or otherwise? Yeah, of course. So I, you know, I talked a little bit about design and so right, implementation of standards that exist in terms of the web, web content accessibility guidelines, for example, is a starting point, right? Just even thinking about implementing the standards that already exist, certainly need to continue evolving those standards and make those standards as clear and comprehensive as possible as it relates to telehealth specifically um, and health information technology more broadly. I would say beyond that, you know, there's a need to think about how that technology is implemented so people with disabilities like other health disparity populations also face the digital divide. And so individuals who may benefit from accessing care through telehealth may not have the hardware they need or the broadband they need to be able to engage. And another thing to think about is training. So even if we created the most accessible technology, right, do healthcare professionals and do patients know how to use that technology and implement the accessibility features? 
So there's a wide range of things, right, in terms of implementation to think about. Another point to think about is unintended consequences. So, of course, you know, we create interventions often with the best intentions, but in practice, right, there may be unintended consequences. So one example related to telehealth is this idea of cost containment. So if telehealth is, is shown to be more cost effective in certain cases, there may be a tendency to promote telehealth as a means of engaging in care. And it may be, right, that people with disabilities, if it's thought that they don't have access because we haven't created physical spaces in ways that are accessible or often physicians. So there's a, another statistic that says only about 41% of physicians feel very confident they can provide the same quality of care to their disabled patients, right? There may be a tendency to encourage people with disabilities to use telehealth as opposed to coming in person or, and people with disabilities may also have the most benefit from coming in person for reasons such as not being able to position a video camera, right? In, in a way that allows for uh, the best possible examination. So a lot of things to think about, right? In terms of continuing to monitor how telehealth is used and continuing to monitor differential impact of that technology in practice. And I think as is most often the case for topics like this or issues like this, people often overlook the intricacies of the issue. And you just touched on a lot of things right there that need to be considered. So I think it's important that we have conversations about that and focus on that as, as we move forward into the future. I want to shift gears a little bit. So I know that you're active in helping produce content for a couple different health journals. And you also serve on the board of directors for the American Association of People with Disabilities. You're on the Patient Center Outcomes Research Institute Patient Engagement Advisory Panel. And you're also the president and co-founder of the Blue Trunk Foundation which for folks who may not know is basically a nonprofit organization that focuses on accessible travel for folks. Needless to say, you have a lot going on, but if you wouldn't mind, can you tell us a little bit more about the Blue Trunk Foundation and its work? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So this is an organization that I co-founded several years ago. And again, this was born out of some personal experiences as well as conversations more broadly with other people who are disabled. And so I love traveling. I didn't get a chance to do much of that growing up. But as I entered my 20s, and then certainly my professional career, it became an increasingly important part of my life. And when I started acquiring chronic health conditions and later became a wheelchair user, and then more recently have developed some vision-related impairments, that changed, right? So traveling became really challenging in terms of finding information about what spaces, what services were accessible to me. So everything from hotels to tourist attractions to restaurants and so forth. So the idea from Blue Trunk came from kind of that frustration and wishing there was a place I could go to find answers to all the questions that I had. And then from talking to others with a wide range of disabilities about their own experiences and challenges and, and hopes for, right, what this could look like in, in a different future. And so at Brookside, we take really a cross-disability perspective, thinking about the multiple ways people may need access related to disability, related to aging, related to chronic health conditions. And we have you know, several different programs. So a big part of the work we do is generating content in terms of guides, so both for people who are traveling and also in terms of businesses who want to create more accessible again, services and spaces. We've also been thinking more about education. We recently received a grant from the Charlottesville Area Community Foundation through Bama Works, which is supported by Dave Matthews Band. And this is to start thinking about disability education uh, or education related to disability in high schools. We've been doing a lot of work partnering with universities across the country for several years now, but expanding this work into high schools with the idea that regardless of what profession you enter, there are questions related to accessibility that will help create a world that is more accessible for all of us. And then um, another space that we've been working in is consulting directly to groups um, and organizations and businesses who want to create 
additional or grow their accessibility. Um, one of the things I'm most proud about is the work that we did during the pandemic to make sure that vaccination clinics through our local health district and also through the university here were accessible to people in terms, again, of uh, physical accessibility, but accessibility in terms of having ASL interpretation, in terms of having sensory-friendly spaces for people who needed to be able to get their vaccine um, in a low-stimulation environment. And we want to make sure people know that they can learn more online at www.bluetrunk.org. So that is great work y'all are doing, so thank you so much. Again, I want to shift gears really quickly one more time. Or you had an experience that I think a lot of people would assume would be pretty fascinating and interesting. You testified in front of Congress recently, and you mostly focused on bridging health equity gaps and barriers that folks with disabilities face while they're seeking health care. So can you just share a little bit about that opportunity, how it came about, what your message was to lawmakers that you spoke to? Yeah, absolutely. And so I've been, you know, over the last few years, been increasingly involved in policy conversations related to health equity, particularly as it relates to the disability community and people living with chronic health conditions. And this particular opportunity came, I, I was approached by Representative Doggett's office, first just about a conversation more generally about this hearing and to you know, do some talking about what types of issues may be considered in the context of this hearing, and then later was invited to be a witness for the hearing itself. You know, there's so many things to be thinking about in terms of, of course, health disparities and the disparities that people with disabilities and chronic health conditions face, right, stem from such a wide confluence of factors related to employment and education and histories of institutionalization and so forth. But for the purpose of this testimony, I focus very specifically on barriers related to healthcare delivery services. So telehealth was one of the things I talked about um, in terms of right how we may shift and think about policies that will lead to further accessibility arising from telehealth. The other points I talked about, kind of my starting point, was to think about let's make sure that we always and consistently recognize the disability community as a health disparity population, right, as a population that faces significant barriers to access to healthcare quality and then you know, definitely experiences worse health, health outcomes than non-disabled individuals. And so that was one, you know, one of the first points I made. Um, another point was related to thinking about enforcement and expansion of existing legislation and also existing regulations. So, right, kind of over 70, I think it's close to 75% of individuals with disabilities report experiencing barriers that impede them from using healthcare services. And that's Huge number, right? And so even though we have legislation like the Rehabilitation Act, like the ADA, the ACA, right, we still face incredible barriers to healthcare. And so thinking through what does it mean for such legislation to be enforced? What does it mean for us to expand the legislation that exists and also the regulation stemming from that legislation to create further access? Another kind of space that I talked about was medical education. I mentioned that statistic earlier about the percentage of physicians who feel very confident in providing care to disabled patients. You know, there's other similar statistics in terms of of lack of widespread knowledge about the ADA and requirements under their responsibilities under the ADA. And so thinking about medical education, how can we reimagine what that education looks like so that disability is talked about throughout the curriculum? Often it's not talked about at all or it's, you know, one lecture across, right, a four-year curriculum. So how do we right in terms of medical education at the beginning and then in terms of continuing medical education. And then, you know, one other point is related to representation. So one in four Americans is disabled, but in terms of healthcare workforce, it's about 3% and same with medical students. And there's lots of barriers in terms of entry into training and in terms of staying in practice. And so 
once again, right, representation matters for a whole range of reasons. We talked about crisis standards of care earlier. So who's at the table when those crisis standards of care are being drafted, for example? We also have a lot of data related to other forms of marginalization, for example, being a racial ethnic minority and the benefits of having right representation in that sense in terms of right what types of patients are welcomed into practice in terms of feeling more comfortable working with somebody who has a similar culture as you do as a patient. So those are some of the points I touched on and, and talked about the ways we may craft policy to see those changes. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, your insight and your expertise. Before we go, now that we've covered some of the more serious stuff, I've got two more lighthearted questions for you to answer just to give folks an idea of who you are beyond the work that you do. Generally, what we've done in this podcast up to this point for our return listeners is we'll ask our guests a pair of food-related and entertainment-related questions, but just to keep things from getting too predictable, we're switching things up. Got to keep our listeners on our toes. So now I've got a menu of 10 mystery personal questions. So I'll just ask you to give me two numbers between 1 and 10, and then I will read you those corresponding questions. So whenever you're ready, you can give me the numbers you choose. All right, let's go with 2 and 9. Two and nine, got it. Okay, here's the first one. If you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book, one album, and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself company? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, what are your three entertainment survival kit picks? This is a tough one. This is a tough one. So for books, I love reading across genres. And and so I feel a little embarrassed giving my very kind of cliche answer. But I would say Pride and Prejudice with Jane Austen. And there's so much I want to read. So I tend not to read books over and over again. But this is an exception to that rule. So it's a book that I've always loved the story, but also have great associations with. So my mom grew up in India and and read a lot of Gujarati literature in her native language. But this is one of the kind of first books she fell in love with in terms of reading in English. And it was a book she shared with me when I was in middle school. And over the years, it was a book that she shared with my sister. And then, you know, kind of had a group of friends. My sister growing up, and used to do Pride and Prejudice kind of marathons of, of watching the movie, too. So a little bit embarrassing, but, you know, it's no, no, just no. an honest answer to that question. Not embarrassing at all. That's a great pick. Miss Elizabeth. I thought you were in London. No. No, I'm not. No. No, I we came back in very early, some business with my steward. Yeah. I'm in Devonshire with my aunt and uncle. And now you're having a pleasant trip? Very pleasant. What else was movie and album? Album is really challenging for me. Again, just because there's so many to choose from. I think... You know, you're kind of in this world of streaming and creating playlists. Maybe I would ask if I could choose a few playlists instead. Of absolutely. Absolutely. Go for it. So one playlist I created with a former student of mine, and it's a kind of a 90s, it's a 90s playlist that we both just enjoyed listening to while working and, and kind of just generally. So, you know, I grew up, I was in high school, in high school in the 90s. And so it kind of brings back all of those memories. And then uh, my daughter and I have created, uh, she's 11, we've created a playlist that she's called Women Power Songs. So, and that's just a playlist that we've loved creating together. So I'll bring that one with me too. Okay. And so the final question for you today is, tell me one memory from your life that whenever you think of it, it makes you smile. I feel like I've been talking a fair amount about my childhood. So I'm going to stick with that theme. 
and say that I grew up on a street that was full of kids um, and just like full of, it was a very, it was an intergenerational neighborhood. And I have so many lovely memories from growing up. So it was called Ross Street and we had a name that we had called ourselves the Ross Street Rascals. We even had t-shirts for all the kids that said this. So, and, you know, we just spent a lot of time together outside. Um, in the summers, there would be counselors and we called, we called it park activities. I'm sure it had some other official name, but it was making root beer with dry ice playing tetherball. I don't even know if it, that exists anymore. I don't remember seeing anything like that recently, but, you know, <laughs> we used to have this string that we called GIMP that was really, I think, made out of plastic and, and making friendship bracelets and things like that. And lots of uh, evenings ordering pizza for the whole neighborhood and pizza boxes on top of cars in the driveway. I just have really lovely memories of, of growing up in that community. Those are great. You paint a lovely picture, so I'm, I'm smiling as well at that memory. That's going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you liked what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so you know when new episodes are available. We want to once again thank our guest, Dr. Ruba Valdez, for joining us today. So, Dr. Valdez, thank you so, so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again for having me.